You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today I'm joined by ethnomusicologist Kendra Van Nijhuis from the Department of Ethnomusicology. Is that right? Department of Musicology. Department of Musicology. We all live under one big umbrella. (laughs) Okay, okay. So musicology, is that different than the Department of Music? Same. It's the same. Okay. Department of Music, musicology, (laughs) ethnomusicology. So what makes ethnomusicology something different? Yeah. Okay. So uh, the way that music, the Department of Music breaks down here, we've got uh, composition, musicology, and then ethnomusicology. Or musicology is also called history and literature. Um, So composition is the composers. Uh, History and literature focuses specifically on Western music, mostly art music, and kind of a historical bent to the way that they do their research. Ethnomusicology is more like a combination of musicology and anthropology. So it's really focused on the way that music and society and the social aspects of music making kind of come together. So historically, it's been a a discipline that focuses on non-Western musics. But nowadays, uh, a lot of people do you know, music from uh, Europe, from the U.S., um, do not just traditional musics, but popular musics as well. So it's become a much broader kind of thing, but the basic tenets are still kind of anthropological-based research uh, focused on society and music. So maybe if someone's heard the term ethnography, which is used in anthropology a lot, that would be yeah. similar. Okay. Yeah. And do you? where do you focus your studies? Uh, my research is in South Korea. Specifically, I focus on underground rock music in South Korea. Uh, so looking at things that are not the mainstream or, you know, kind of under the radar. I like the word underground as well because most of the clubs that I go to are underground. They're basement clubs, so it kind of works on multiple levels. And also, I don't use the word indie because indie has a different connotation in Korea, a specific kind of sonic or, you know, uh, certain record labels kind of connotation. So the underground stuff is like on on the weekends, but you're hearing in the clubs, which you're hearing live and things like that. Okay, yeah, no, that's really interesting. Do you think that we have something similar to that here in the United States, like underground music as opposed to indie music? I think so, yeah. I think a lot of people, and that's the other reason I tend to not use indie, is a lot of people have a connotation in their head of what indie means, specific bands or specific sounds that they're going for. And the underground music that I'm looking at is uh, sonically very broad, genre-wise very, very dispersed. So it's a way to kind of bring all of that together, focusing on like the social aspects. So like the way that the music's being made and presented, the underground DIY kind of kind of thing. Oh, man, there's literally so many questions I could <laughs> ask, but I'll try and keep on track here. So you said there's a lot of different sounds, right? It's sonically very different. Can you give us a sense of the range of sounds you might be talking sure, about? Sure, sure. So um, I tend to focus, instead of kind of thinking about scenes or, you know, genre groups, I think about network clusters. That's one of the technical ideas I use. So I focus less on genre and more on people that tend to play together. But there usually is a genre component to that. But punk is the most, you know, kind of connected network cluster because punk is a very identity-based genre. You've got, you know, not, not just sound, but action, the way you dress. So there's a punk group, definitely, that I work with quite a bit. There's also a group that I kind of call, it's a post-rock, math rock, you know, very basic, less heavy rock, basically. It's it's hard to describe because, like I said, there are lots of different genres, but they tend to play together um, and work together. But they're so more socially connected. Um, it's less about genre, more about friends. They're, they're friends. They know each other. 
and then there's another group I work with, which is mostly based in uh, uh, the foreign neighborhoods of foreigners that live in Korea. And it's very folk-based kind of songwriter, singer-songwriter, storytelling genres, um, kind of pulling from U.S. folk traditions. So, yeah. So when you say foreigner, do you mean like expats from the yes. United States? Yeah. Okay. yeah. I tend to avoid the word expat. I feel that it gives, it kind of separates different migrant workers within, you know, South Korea or the East Asia in general. You know, white Western foreigners tend to be referred to as expats and everybody else are migrants. Um, and so in my own research, I try to kind of avoid the word expat because of those power connotations that it has. But you are right. A lot of people, when they talk about themselves or others, are referring to expats. Yeah. OK, cool. Yeah. And yeah, that was just a, a term I threw in there. But mostly I was trying to understand whether these oh, yeah. were people coming from other Asian countries or yeah. from the U.S. Yeah, and the, from yeah, the, the US. majority of them are uh, English teachers. Um, so people that have come over from specifically English-speaking countries to uh, work in South Korean high schools or at hagwons, which are like after-school programs, to teach English or be native English speakers in the classroom. Okay. Well, I have to say, I always tell myself that if I had, you know, two more lives, right? <laughs> so I'm a biologist now, if I had one more life, I'd be, you know, a professional singer. Mm-hmm. And then if I had a third life, I'd be an ethnomusicologist. So oh, nice. uh, tell us how you actually managed to take this dream and make it a reality. And is it still a dream? Like, <laughs> should I be sad at night when I dream about how I'm not an ethnomusicologist? Well, it has its struggles, I think. There's, there's things you don't realize are difficult until you really get into it and get into the field. But my journey to being an ethnomusicologist is kind of a, a, a long one. Um, I'll try to keep it short. So my undergrad, I went to the University of South Dakota, um, and the plan at that point was to be a music teacher. I was going to be a choir teacher um, in high school. And I ended up one summer, I needed a job, didn't know what to do, and there was a, the National Music Instrument Museum was connected to my university. It's one of the biggest music instrument museums in the world. Um, they have the oldest playable cello, or oldest cello in the world, and the oldest playable harpsichord in the world, in the middle of South Dakota. Um, but it's amazing. If you get a chance, you, everybody should go. But they let me, I got a a summer grant to work there for the summer. I had an interest in East Asian uh, culture and music. I'd done a couple different papers on on Japan. So they had about five, six hundred instruments from East Asia that hadn't really been looked at very closely. Uh, Most of the curators at that museum were focused on Western instruments. And so they kind of, they were nice enough and amazing enough to kind of give me free reign and let me go through the collections and, you know, do a little more research on the instruments that they had. Uh, and that kind of sparked a real interest in doing research, in, because up to that point, I hadn't had a chance. And I ended up writing an undergraduate thesis that was comparing East Asian bamboo flutes, uh, because a lot of the instruments they had, they kind of had gotten from you know, missionaries or from large collections, and they didn't know where they were from. So they were labeled East Asian bamboo flute or like Japanese bamboo flute. So I made a flow chart that you could start with a physical instrument and figure out what the instrument name was based just on physical characteristics, since a lot of these didn't have any provenance of any kind. So that sparked a real interest. I started kind of Googling around, you know, like, what kind of research is this actually? Like, what am I actually doing? And that's how I stumbled upon ethnomusicology as a thing. And I ended up adding an anthropology degree to my undergrad as well to kind of get a sense for, you know, that side of what ethnomusicological research is. And at the same time, I was applying to grad schools thinking, I'm not going to make it into grad school. Mm -mm. But I tried. And then at the same time, I applied to the Critical Language Scholarship Grant to learn Korean, go to Korea for three months and learn Korean. Some of the instruments we had had Korean script on them, and I'd learned how to read the the Hangul, the Korean script. And I was like, oh, I can read that. I'll figure out Korean. (laughs) That was 
that was really arrogant of me. Um, <laughs> so I ended up getting that critical language scholarship, and I got into Berkeley. So I moved from South Dakota to California, then spent three months in Korea, and then came back and started grad school in the fall. Uh, so that was pretty intense. But yeah, that's how I got here to this point. And you were asking about the, the difficulties of ethnomusicology. Uh, I think that first semester for me was really tough. And it was kind of, I think coming straight from undergrad to grad school, having that summer in the middle of going to Korea, just a lot, very intense and a very big step up from the university that I had been at. More work, more things like that. A lot more, like lots of reading, lots of, you know, that kind of stuff. So it was a big jump up that way. And also kind of the pressure that you have in ethnomusicology of trying to figure out what you're going to do. Like I knew I was going to study Korea, but I wasn't sure what in Korea I wanted to study. And so when I'd been in Korea that summer, uh, I was in Jeonju, which is an area known for kind of traditional music and a, you know, specific traditional um, styles of folk music. So my first two years, I was really focused in on that, really interested in traditional music, uh, specifically a genre called pansori, which is a sung storytelling genre, which I was just I thought was really interesting. And I did my master's work on that here. And after I finished that, I kind of I'd gotten to know some professors in that area. I'd gotten to know what the research was like. And I kind of felt like that was not I was interested and I loved it. I still love it. But it's not quite what I wanted to put my, you know, stake my claim on. You know what I mean? Like I wanted to do something kind of out of the box, something hadn't been looked at. So I got a grant between my master's and my Ph.D. to go to Korea. And I just went to everything. I went to musicals. I went to, you know, pop concerts. I went to traditional concerts. I went everywhere. And I ended up stumbling into this club called Club FF. I had found out about it online and kind of just was like, oh, check, check this out. And it was the most interesting experience I think I've had. And it was I was done. I knew exactly what I needed to do. It was very, yeah, very different, interesting club. Still, it's still there. It's still is something I've, I've gone to quite a bit. But what was interesting to me was there's five bands of just completely different genres. Um, like one kind of sounded like the Beatles. And then you had kind of a hair metal thing. And then you had, you know, a punk group. And then you have, you know, something that sounds like Coldplay. Like it was just a complete genre, you know, kind of cluster of crazy. And the way that the audience was acting, the way that they were moving, the way that, you know, the audience changed between bands a lot, like was very different from what I was used to seeing in the States. And so I was like, okay, I got to figure out what's going, you know, what's going on here. And from there, I, you know, I came back the next summer and did preliminary work as well. Just basically just going to shows, meeting people, trying to figure out what was going on in the field. And then from there, I did this past year, I did a full year of field work and I went, you know, and, and did the same kind of thing. And I just got back this August. So now I'm in the writing stage of the PhD. So. Oh, my gosh. There's so much in there. Okay. I know, right? right? No, no, no. This is awesome. Uh, okay. So Korea was just sort of, it was just sort of fortuitous. You just saw some instruments that were Korean, and that's how you decided Korea specifically. Yeah. Well, because at, at the time, I was doing, I, at that music museum, I was working on Chinese, Japanese, and Korean instruments. And up until that point, I knew more about Japan, which I think is kind of common, especially for, you know, people from, like, you know, places that, like the Midwest, you don't have as much, you know, anime and music like that. It's easy to easier to get into, easier to find. So yeah, up until that point, it was mainly Japan that I was focused on. But the more I did research and the more I was reading, I got really interested in Korea as this kind of middle point. Most of the research, the literature, the way they talk about it is like you know this Chinese sphere of influence, or like you know China 
Chinese culture moving through Korea to Japan or like Japanese pop culture moving from Japan through Korea to China. And I find I like this middle country in you know, a middle country, but this Korea has a lot of interesting stuff and this kind of having these two bigger cultural powers next to it has a really interesting history that way. And now Korea, especially pop culture wise, is the one of the bigger powers in East Asia, one of the larger, you know, uh, cultural exporters. So that history and that kind of those those cultural dynamics between those three countries was really fascinating to me. I found Korea as a really great entry point for that kind of thinking. And how close is the music that you're seeing? How close is that to what people might recognize as K-pop? Oh, so far. Okay. <laughs> um, well, that's what's interesting is a lot of people, when I talk about underground rock, uh, think about it in this way, especially in Korea, as like anti-K-pop or, you know, this kind of against K-pop or, you know, some sort of counterculture thing. And that's not really the case always. I mean, some pe- a lot of musicians I work with don't like K-pop, but they don't see it in an antagonistic fashion. And some of them even see it as a way to get their music out there. So kind of riding, you know, the, the way that K-pop moves uh, through fandoms and kind of, you know, the way that's been played in on festivals and outside of Korea, they see that as a way they could follow that same track or kind of use the, the popularity of K-pop to help, you know, push their own genre or push their own music. For example, the South by Southwest has a K-pop night out. Uh, every year that's mostly, uh, like, there's a few K-pop acts, but it's a lot of indie or underground music. And the Korean government is really supportive of exporting music. So they use a lot of the same channels that K-pop uses to try to export their music as well. But sonically, yeah, very different. More associated with, uh, well, especially because K-pop is, tends to be a kind of dance genre. Um, the, you know, the singer, you see, if you see a K-pop video, they're all dancing. It's mostly sung, uh, very electronic. The musicians I work with, it's all about playing your instruments, a lot about, you know, bands and writing and playing your own stuff. So some of those kind of rhetorics of authenticity come into play a little bit. So to them, yeah, it's a lot about, you know, making your own music, writing your own music, being an artist, and kind of focused on rock genres more than, you know, kind of pop stuff. Although, like I said, there is some stuff that would lean more towards kind of a pop rock sound, a Coldplay kind of sound. So like I said, very big genre. And I think part of that is because of K-pop. Because K-pop has such a large market share and kind of has a very specific genre sound, you have a lot of other options to play with in the underground because none of them are getting mainstream attention in Korea. So So when you say that a band sounds punk or like Coldplay, how different is that sound because you're in Korea versus here in the West? Like, are they singing in English? Are they singing in Korean? Um, Well, the sound is not too different. Um, A lot of the musicians have similar uh, references and similar, you know, uh, influences to bands in the U.S. Uh, Even bands who are musicians who are older, who started in the 90s, they were all going to Tower Records in Korea and finding, you know, the same kind of rock music that, you know, people who, you know, were in the 90s in the U.S. were kind of looking at. In terms of lyrics, that's actually a very interesting point. It depends on genre. A lot of the punk music tends to be in Korean. But some musicians, especially ones that are kind of a little bit more pop on the pop rock side of things, tend to sing in English. And for some of them, it is a marketability thing. They want to be marketable outside of Korea, and they feel like singing in English will help with that. Um, For others, it's a feeling that uh, this is a better way to express yourself in rock music is singing in English. And for others, they actually spend a lot of time abroad or you know lived abroad, especially with Korean musicians who've lived abroad, 
and have started writing music in English when they were abroad. And so when they came back to Korea, kept writing in English. Um, but the majority of the foreign musicians, it's in English. Everybody's singing English. A couple people try, have tried to sing in Korean to mixed results. And actually, one musician has a song uh, written in Farsi because he's British-Iranian or basically Iranian. So there's a little bit of, you know, play there, but the majority of people sing in the, whatever language they grew up in, so English or Korean. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Graduates here on Calix. My name is Tesla, and today I'm joined by ethnomusicologist Kendra Van Nijhuis talking about her dissertation work in ethnomusicology. And essentially, it sounds like your homework is just going to see concerts. Yeah. Is that uh, how... So where is this class? How can I? No, uh, you must. uh, So tell us a little bit more about your research practices. Yeah. So, yeah, my fieldwork is a little unique. You know, not everybody gets to just go to rock shows every weekend. But basically, it's a little more intense than I think even people I was working with realize. When I go to shows, I'm not just hanging out. I'm not just, you know, I usually record. I usually record the concerts, especially try to get towards the back so I can get a little bit of audience as well. And I'm having to mentally take notes because, you know, it's a dark club. I can't physically take notes usually because a lot of times with ethnomusicology, when you're observing a concert, observing musical practice, you're trying to take notes to use for later. So that was one difficulty I had with my research was trying to kind of remember what points were interesting or I had little weird techniques like I would, uh, you know, I usually have my I had a camera phone because it's less conspicuous. It's less it makes me less, you know, seem less awkward. <laughs> and if I saw something interesting, I would just turn the camera quick. And so when I'm scrolling through, I can see like, OK, that's, there's something happening here that I need to I, mean, I needed to remember to have written, written down. But a big part of what we do in ethnomusicology is participant observation. So it's not just about you know, sitting back and observing. It's about really participating in the culture, getting to know people, kind of living like they live in some ways or uh, as much as you can or understanding kind of where they come from, the struggles they have, you know, experiencing that. So it wasn't just going to shows. I would always hang out afterwards. And which usually included a bit of drinking, which is, yeah, you know, it's, and again, if I didn't drink, I, you know, would have been, seemed more of an outsider, you know, like would have been a little more awkward. So it's part of, you know, kind of getting into the culture and getting to know people. Um, and we usually hang out, you know, most of the night until the subway starts up again at 5 a.m. or, you know, and it was a way to get to know people. So it makes it easier when you're working later to interview them and asking them kind of, if you're asking them tougher questions, if you know them well you get better responses than than if you don't. But it was also a way to kind of hone my research or figure out what exactly was interesting or happening, observing things after shows or, you know, interactions, ways people talk to each other, way people work with each other. And then when I did interviews, I could ask people about that, about like, you know, well, you remember that thing a few weeks ago, you were talking to so-and-so and this and that, you know, and you can get you know, what they're thinking, why this happened the way it did, what their opinions are on these different things. So... That kind of is, it's, you know, it's fun, definitely. I'm not going to say it's not. I loved it. But it gets pretty intense sometimes. And then when you get home, you know, after a long night like that, you have to quick write up whatever you did or, like, you know, try to write up questions you had, things you wanted to do, and kind of really keep good notes on, on that so that when you're at the stage I'm at right now, the writing stage, you can go back and see and remember what was happening and what you were doing. And that was basically, so Friday, Saturday, every week was going to shows. So that got pretty, towards the middle, it was getting pretty rough. Like it was, because it's just a constant, you know, every single weekend, Friday and Saturday, and sometimes Thursday and Sunday as well. There were shows sometimes Thursday nights and Sunday afternoons. 
So that gets kind of it gets kind of exhausting a little bit. And I hate complaining about it because it was so much fun and it was so great. But yeah, it can get kind of intense. And then the weekdays was mostly going back over those notes, um, maybe writing a little bit, you know, making sure that my audio and video clips were all backed up, you know, multiple times in multiple ways because you don't want to lose that stuff. And then towards the middle, a little before the middle point, I started doing a lot of interviews. So the weekdays were spent sending out interview requests or doing interviews um, or, you know, kind of looking at taking notes on interviews I'd just done. So by the middle point, uh, you know, because I stayed there for one full year, by the middle point all the way to the end, it was pretty every day was doing something interviewing, transcribing, you know, taking notes, sending out interview requests, and then going to shows on the weekends. So it got to be a pretty, pretty intense thing towards the end there. But yeah, yeah, it was really enjoyable. And did you find that it was fairly easy to get accepted into this group? Or what was their response like to your interest? Oh, yeah. And the, the especially on the, the foreign side of things, really easy. And especially because I think, especially as a foreigner, you're conspicuous. So, I mean, even when I did that second summer, so the first summer I did a preliminary field work in 2014, I mainly was just going to shows, kind of sitting in the back, not talking to anybody, just kind of getting a feel for what music was was happening there. And I was mostly going to Korean shows. I didn't really even realize there was a foreign, you know, component to the scene. And then the second summer, someone kind of told me about it. So I started going to the foreign shows and I was immediately like approached and talked to and asked because I was new. I was a new foreigner. And it was really easy to go up to people and ask them questions and be immediately accepted. And I got very lucky. Uh, one of the first shows I went to, a good friend of mine, uh, Douglas Vitor, who's a photographer. Since he was, you know, he was taking professional, professional photos and you know, had a professional rig, so I immediately started kind of talking to him, like, what's up? And he introduced me to a ton of people. So in our fieldwork, we call people like that gatekeepers. So if you find someone who's connected to a lot of different people and you get close with them, they will connect you to a ton of other people. So that was, once I got connected with Doug, um, then I, it was a pretty kind of a waterfall of, of connections after that. Um, and everybody, like, some people didn't quite understand what I was doing. I think some people thought of me more like a journalist or a critic, especially with the, with the questions I was asking them. Um, but a lot of the, especially the foreign musicians, uh, were either working on or had masters in teaching English as a foreign language. So they had a little bit of experience with doing research um, and kind of understood what I was working on. So that made it a little bit uh, easier to talk to them and and get them to help me connect with other people. And you mentioned uh, there might be a specific thing you would ask them about from a few weeks ago, an interaction. Can you give us an example of what kind of interactions you're talking about? Yeah. So one of the things that I've I noticed pretty quickly, especially with that kind of the post-rock uh, network cluster, was that the foreign musicians uh, liked to have audiences that were standing and, you know, uh, they would drink, the audience would be, you know, drinking, partying, having fun, but generally standing up in front of them. And the Korean musicians in that group and the Korean audiences preferred to sit and watch and had more of a kind of concert atmosphere to it. So I would never ask specifically, like, you know, remember that show where you were standing, other people were standing and they were sitting and da 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 It would be more like, so what differences have you noticed between the Korean audience members that you have and the foreign audience members? And then if I didn't quite get that, then I'd be like, oh, yeah, well, I've noticed that, you know, the Korean audience members tend to sit in chairs. How do you feel about that? You know, kind of taking something I'd seen and try to get their not just how they they see it, but how they feel about it and what they think what they think the reason is for it is how they justify 
their actions in their mind, uh, trying to get their kind of side of things. Um, Because for me, it was never about, you know, finding some like real truth or like what exactly is happening. But because I'm working on intercultural interaction, it's a lot about how the actors within these these things are understanding their actions, understanding the actions of others and how they feel those those interactions should play out um, based on their own cultural background and musical background. So. And believe it or not, we're actually almost out of time here. But I definitely, uh, I know your work's on intercultural interactions. So can you talk a little bit about that or maybe just give us some of the preliminary findings that summarize your work? Sure. Yeah, it's it's a very complicated thing. Um, I, I focused in on it because, like I said, you know, I found it very interesting. But also, I feel like it shows some of the kind of power dynamics or the cultural dynamics between uh, Western foreigners and Koreans um, in Korea in a larger scale, not just music. And that's one thing like a lot of, you know, English teachers or foreign, you know, musicians uh, have a lot of complaints about, you know, discrimination or ways that they're treated. And at the same time, they recognize a lot of their privileges and the ways that they have a lot of benefits because they're Western foreigners doing rock music in Korea. So to me, like I'm in my writing now, I'm focused on how to balance those two sides of that equation uh, to recognize the difficulties. And, you know, because I, I as a participant obser- observer, I experienced some of those you know, issues of discrimination or difficulties that you have trying to get things done. Uh, but at the same time, I experienced a lot of the benefits that come from being a foreigner. So that's the, the I think the biggest thing is trying to find a way to talk about it that recognizes both sides of that and sees it in a larger framework of understandings of of race and culture in Korea. And you must be drawing on some outside texts as well, right? It's not entirely uh, first person. Oh, yeah. Participation. Yeah. Yeah. That first part of the the fieldwork as well, if I had free time during the week, was a lot of reading uh, different scholarship and different things like that. One of the things I really work on a lot is uh, L.R. Smith uh, has this idea of intercultural network theory. Uh, which is how I kind of the network clusters things comes into play there. Um, and a lot about how looking at networks and looking through networks helps you see these intercultural interactions and the power dynamics within, you know, the, the relationship between two individual actors in a larger network. So, Okay, well, as we end the show here, I have to give you a chance to leave us with last words or anything that you think is really important. Uh, so got any words of wisdom for us, Kendra? <laughs> yeah, I'd say I think my, my big ending point is, you know, Ethnomusicology is a really interesting field, something where if you have a lot of passion about what you're working on, um, it makes it a lot easier to do. And I would say if you're interested in it, uh, doing music classes and doing anthropology classes, you know, would help you see kind of, you know, if it's something you want to work on um, and reading, just reading different uh, ethnomusicological or ethnography accounts of, of music in different places would be the best way to kind of go into that. And I, yeah, I would recommend it. <laughs> do you do you think you're going to work uh, on Korean music forever? Or are there any other countries that have piqued your interest? Um, you know, at this point, I'm so embedded in Korean music culture, not just in terms of my research, but like my, my networks with other, you know, professors and academics. So, and I'm still in the middle of writing. So at this point, I am just Korea all the way. But yeah, when, once I, you know, once I get the job, get a job, then I think I'll start exploring other aspects. But I think in, I, I've, Korea has always got a lot of different interesting things to look at in terms of music that aren't always ex- as well explored as, you know, music in other countries. So 
I think I'd probably stick with Korea. <laughs> and I know that a lot of humanities, uh, they, you know, people work towards writing a book. So mm-hmm. should we expect a book from you sometime <laughs> in the future about Korean rock music? You know, I'd, I'd love to. I would really love to. And not even, like, it hasn't been covered that much in the U.S. or in, in English literature. So I think it would be really great to do that. Uh, the only things that have been, there's two documentaries on rock music in Korea, which you should check out, uh, both by uh, Epstein and Tangerlini. Uh, but yeah, in terms of a book, yeah, I, I, I would love to do that. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, thanks for being here today, Kendra. Yeah, thanks. And for you out in the audience, you've been listening to The Graduates here on CalX 90.7 FM. My name is Tesla Munson. And as I said, this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their research here on campus and around the world. And uh, today we've been speaking with ethnomusicologist Kendra Van Nijhuis about her work in Korea. Uh, studying the underground rock scene. It sounds pretty awesome, I must say. I'm a little jealous. Here I am, like, working at Calix, signing up for tickets to go to shows, and then, you know, you're getting a PhD for it. So uh, (laughs) it's pretty awesome. And uh, her work focuses, as I said, on underground rock music and intercultural relationships between Korean artists and foreign artists and uh, a lot of interviewing and talking about the scene so thank you again for being here and we'll be back in two weeks with another episode so stay tuned you're listening to kalx berkeley 